0: Are there any questions left, (laughs) either about your practice or about bringing the practice back into the world? So the question was about how to hold the five precepts as as we go back into the world. Um, one big change in the precepts which we'll do on Tuesday morning is change the precept <coughs> from refraining <coughs> from sexual activity to <coughs> refraining from sexual misconduct. <coughs> so. You will be released from <laughs> the precept of celibacy <laughs> when you're back in the world, unless you choose to uh, keep it. Uh, the precepts are—they are, <clears throat> they are a, a foundational and um, extremely powerful part of our practice out in the world. Uh, on so many levels, Um, having taken the precepts and really being committed to them uh, it just acts like a mindfulness bell whenever we might be inclined to do an action that is breaking them and even a small, you know, like maybe killing an insect or some form of (coughs) Mild wrong speech, you know, taking something that's not offered that you really think wouldn't make any difference. But having taken the precepts, it's like when we're about to do those actions, it's like something wakes us up. You know, we say, no, you know, I don't need to do that. And so it acts as a uh, reminder of a wholesome kind of restraint and renunciation. <coughs> The Buddha talked of um, very often he talked of 10 unwholesome actions. And the precepts uh, kind of are the foundation of them. So it's not killing, not stealing, not committing sexual misconduct. and then the four kinds of refraining from wrong speech: of not lying, not harsh speech, not gossip. You know and not useless talk, and then the last three are not uh, to refrain from covetousness, from ill will and from wrong view you know and so that's a little expanded version of the precepts, but I found that uh, remembering those tens and exploring them you know you could really do some reading and and Explore the range and the depth of them. It's like the Buddha's reminds me of a sign. You know, maybe you go to the beach and you see a sign: uh, "Dangerous undertow." You know, be careful. And so the Buddha's just highlighting: these are the ten actions, the ten unwholesome actions, which lead to suffering. You know, the 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 karmic cause of suffering. They're the suffering in the moment. And so it's a very clear. presentation of arenas that we should really uh, watch out for. So knowing this, as I said, that's kind of an elaboration of the precepts.
1: Um,
0: It really is the cause of uh, happiness in our lives when when we undertake the practice of refraining from those actions and that happiness, it's like we're free of remorse about having done unskillful things leads to an easier development of concentration, which leads to deeper wisdom, so it's just a spiral upwards. Uh, I would would highly recommend, suggest, encourage uh, an active exploration of the precepts. You know, they're not taken as commandments, It's, it's very different, it's not thou shalt not, Rather, the precepts are formulated in the way I undertake the training to refrain from. It's a whole different spirit, you know, and there may be times when we do break the precept. Having taken them, we'll probably be more aware that that has happened, and then we simply recommit. Okay, I'll, I'll retake them. Um. So it would be really, really helpful, not only for the meditation practice, but just for the quality of our lives, you know, to, to do an active investigation of them in our lives. It's really important.
2: This morning, in the hall, when the POC sit was announced, not sit, the group, um, somebody asked, "What's the POC?" And the people of color. And there was a comment in the hall, something to the effect of, "What color do you have to be to be part of And I felt the heart contract and talking with other yogis, they had kind of similar experiences and kind of a painful kind of feeling. And I remembered your story about the board meeting. And I said, well, wait a minute, let me see if I can see this, where this comment's coming from, this other point of view. And I could see how the term might be divisive, it's like inclusive, like well, what color do you have to be? Maybe misleading. doesn't point to the, you know, it's meant for people who are historically oppressed, Um, and and it points away from this unifying force of the Dharma, that we're all in the same boat and we all have experienced So I get that. And at the same time, as a brown person in America who has live in mostly white communities and white schools, and who has experienced intimately the experience of feeling other because of my race, those two truths of valid. And just figuring out how to hold that. And what's the path towards mutual understanding? Because if we sit here for three months in, in silence, and we
0: don't sort of move towards that mutual understanding, I feel there's a loss mm-hmm. there. Did you hear the question in the back? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll try to... Uh, it was about uh, the, the little discussion this morning. I I wasn't here for it, but I, I did hear about it. Uh, About the announcement of the POC group tomorrow, and then somebody asking, What's POC? because we're familiar with that terminology, but many people may not know. And then, you know, described people of color. And then somebody asked, Well, what color do you have to be? And then, kind of a feeling of kind of a contraction of the heart and a separation, and just trying to figure out how to hold it's really a holding. Of the two truths. You know, on one level, as you said, we're all in the same boat, and the Four Noble Truths are true for all of us, and freedom. It's the same path to freedom for all of us. And on the relative level, we have very different experiences, and there is a history of oppression and injustice, and people uh, have really lived through that. And so that's a reality you know, for many people, and so how do we hold it? How do we talk about it? And I think um, the framework of the two truths, of the two levels of relative and ultimate is a, is a useful framework because um, it acknowledges the reality of both levels and also how they inform one another. Because even on a leaving aside the uh, dimension of race, just on the level of relative truth and ultimate truth, people can get caught on either end of that spectrum. We can get so identified with the conventional reality, basically of self, in all of its manifestations, you know, and so caught up in our particular stories that we're imprisoned by them but equally dangerous and this has been spoken about in various traditions people can get attached to some understanding of the ultimate level get attached to emptiness dismissing the relative level oh it doesn't matter everything's empty you know, and that it's said in the in the tradition that that attachment is actually harder to address you know when people are attached to some notion of emptiness. So our challenge is to see that in some way they are expressions of each other. Can we acknowledge the truth of our relative reality, our relative conditioning, with all that entails? in one, in one dimension, and especially in this country, the whole history of racism. It's a big part you know, of, of our culture. And as I mentioned the other night, it's shocking how easy it is for somebody not personally touched by it to be unaware. You know, so that's, that's part of the reality too. So how can we Understand that and connect with it and address it and act on it (coughs) at the same time having that be informed by the wisdom of the ultimate level so we don't get caught in negative mind states, you know, so that we really address it from a place of compassion on all sides. So I think that's the challenge, and it's not as We know it's not easy, you know, and it's going to... Just one of the things that I've learned in these last few years, and so I see what a long process this is of coming to understanding. Um, Three or four or five years ago, I don't think I could have even said what I just said, because talking about it felt uncomfortable. You know And it's so amazing. And I, I, could, I could just watch the, the transformation, especially at our board meetings, where we've been addressing this issue, just by bringing it up again and again and again and working on it and doing the workshops and all of that. It makes it easier just uh, okay this is this is the reality can we talk about it can we address it and that's what's needed i mean we need to talk to one another uh, so that's that's the challenge and there'll be times when things don't land right inevitably you know and so can we just hold that too you know from a place of understanding
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, yeah, so how does, how does our Western culture, how, what's the effect of that on, on meditation practice, especially vis-a-vis Asian cultures, you know, who, who uh, are connected to the practice? Um, of course, this will be it's somewhat a generalization, you know, and obviously there are individual differences. But one thing that's very obvious practicing in Asia is that uh, the faith factor is very high, you know. and so doubt is not a major hindrance. In the West, because we don't grow up with these teachings, so for many people doubt is, as you know. <laughs> You know, that can come up a lot about a whole range of doubt about ourselves, doubt about the teachings. So that's one big difference. Second difference that I've noticed is that um, generally we are very investigative, right? Our minds uh, and kind of our schooling is like that. And I, I think it's Much more so than in Asia. So there's an upside and a downside to this. An upside is that investigation is one aspect of the wisdom factor of mind. The downside is unbalanced by tranquility, by concentration, by equanimity, it leads to a lot of proliferation of thought. You know, and so. I think for many of us, probably for most of us, a good part of our practice, especially in the beginning—in the beginning can last fifteen years—our mind is just very active, you know, lots of thinking about things. And on the one hand, it can help, you know, can be in the service of understanding. On the other hand, it is—it can be a hindrance to concentration. So those are, those are some of the differences that I've seen. But it's not like we have a choice. You know, here we are and this is our conditioning, whatever it may be, in, in all the realms, you know, and so we work with we work with what's here. I mean the beauty of the path is that it doesn't really matter. You know, there's there's a way through it all. Saida Upandita used to talk of two kinds of yogis. He said there's the tribe of Moggallana. Moggallana and Saraputra were the two chief disciples of the Buddha. So Moggallana was foremost in uh, psychic potency, psychic power. You know, There's so lots of stories of everything he could do with... His great powers of mind, Saraputa was said to be foremost in wisdom and analysis. Mogalana got it, got fully enlightened in one week. Saraputa, because of his analytic mind, took him much longer. It took him two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so Sayadaw Pandita would say, "Be of the tribe of Mogalana." <laughs> but. <laughs> At least for myself, I wasn't, <laughs> you know. It's, so as I said, you know, our conditioning is what it is, and we practice practice that.
1: So today in the practice groups, it's so clear that people are kind of stripped down a bit and are really tender. And as much as I see the value of, you know, toughening up so we can hack it in the world, there's a, there's a, a beauty and power to this openness of heart, and I wonder if you could speak a little bit to, like, what conditions need to be present, or what practices you found helpful in cultivating this incredibly beautiful and powerful open heart in a world where we're not surrounded by everybody else being that
0: way. I mean, that's a great question. How you know feeling the open-heartedness you know, of these days, even as, as you say, we're in the process of toughening up in these few days to be, to be in the world. Uh, but how do we sustain that open-heartedness? Um, I would put a different frame on it. I don't think it's so much a question, in these days of transition and also when you go home, I don't think it's so much a question of putting up boundaries or barriers my experience is that it's more a question of adjusting i don't know if this is going to make sense but adjusting the frequency of our energy system like being on retreat it's like the f- just the practice it's like the frequency you might say gets higher you know finer it's like We're just experiencing things on a much higher frequency level, so to go out into the world where things are not operating at that frequency is really jarring. That's why after the first three-month retreat, the first time we did it, we really had no idea what we were doing. We ended the retreat, we ended the silence, and two hours later people left. There was no transition days. We were getting casualty reports all up and down the East Coast, <laughs> not literally, but you know, kind of <laughs> just the really hard time people were having because there was no adjusting period. And so, what I see happening in these days is more like we're getting our energy system to be in sync with the frequency outside that really has nothing to do with open-hearted or closed-heartedness you know it just really has to do with being a little more active in talking and engaging on the conceptual level you know all the ways that we've talked about especially in these last week or so you know all the practices the, the metta and compassion the practice of the precepts the tremendous importance, and I, this really can't be emphasized enough, is uh, the power of a daily practice. You know, and you, you might think now, you know, after sitting, you know, meditating, you know, eight, nine, ten, twelve hours a day, sitting or, or walking, practicing an hour a day will be nothing it's surprisingly hard you know it takes a real commitment it takes giving it a priority in our lives because if not it gets squeezed out so easily that's the that's the foundation for keeping the heart open the mind open so i would just i would really encourage you to to establish and sustain, you know, that daily practice. One of the problems that people often have is because the concentration will probably not be at this level. You know, it's it's just going to be different. And so the mind you might sit, and the mind will just be thinking for the hour. The tendency might be to then start judging the sitting. Oh, you know, you try it for a day or two, you see the mind is wandering more. This is not working, and so then that becomes a, a rationale for you know, not continuing. It doesn't matter what happens. You know, it's the, it's the commitment and the regularity and the discipline of doing it. In some days the mind will be more settled, and some days it'll be less settled. Doesn't matter. Just watch what's happening. That's what really keeps the heart open. Otherwise, it's like it's like. Dharma, it's like we're we're working from memory of it rather than from the forward edge of it. Uh, yeah. And it's a challenge, you know because one of my favorite uh, internet online messages, you know, it's different spam messages, but one of my fra- favorites. Is you know these different ads increase your desire, <laughs> and then whatever I don't know whatever it is they're they're selling, you know, as if that's a good idea. <laughs> and oh yeah, let's increase desire. So that's the world, you know. And so we really need to have a refuge, you know, an inner refuge of some stillness and silence, which a daily practice will offer. One thing I mentioned in in my small group this morning, and it's important just to bring this understanding out with you. You know, when you go home, it is completely natural for there to be many ups and downs emotionally. You know, when you leave the retreat, even for a week or two or three, you know, you may feel a lot of exhilaration at first in reconnecting with people, and then. Maybe a real crash, you know, and you start to feel a little depressed or grieving, or you know, a loss of something, and then you'll feel high again, and then, so be understanding of those cycles. They're normal. It's not that anything is wrong. You know, this, people often go through that, and then after some time, it, it balances out. But it's good to be forewarned you know, that this is, this is a natural part of the uh, adjustment. And you know, any question can be an hour long Dharma talk. I mean, the beauty of mindfulness and course I'll back up you are much more mindful than you realize, you know, because generally people tend to emphasize all the times that we're lost and not realize how many, how many moments of mindfulness, you know, have been there in the course of this. So you are much more aware of what's going on in yourselves uh, than I think you might realize. So that is going to really become obvious as you go out. And so it's very interesting to watch when the heart feels like it's contracting. Let's Great, that can become like a mindfulness spell, you know, so we feel that we're mindful of that happening, and then you know if if it's possible, right okay, well, what's happening now? you know, and so we investigate that, can we relax? Can we open right in that moment so it's, this is fantastic <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it really is There's, There are in many places in the world, or many people, who take six weeks or three months to be watching moment to moment what their internal experience is. You know, it's. And when you go out, and first you'll notice how few people (laughs) (laughs) have done that. (laughs) But I think you'll appreciate your practice tremendously because it'll just. Not that it not that it flattens out difficulties, the same you know, the difficulties are there and the challenges are there and the reactions are there. But we're much more mindful that it's all happening and that gives us a chance to say, okay, how am I getting caught? Can I open? Can I can I let go?
3: much uh, joy and he he just loves to share with other people. Um, The way that my conditioning manifests, on the other hand, is to It and 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 i you know i have meta for people and so like i know that like if i crack the door you know i could like you know release the flood on people almost there's just a, I guess a concern there so what i what i the question here, what i'm looking for which feels so ridiculous is is do you have any um uh, you know little you know pithy or simple just plant the seed of an idea about what the value of practice may be that I might be able to you know, call on so that I don't, <laughs> you know, tell somebody
0: mm-hmm. about, you know, can kind of get what I'm going on, just leave it there. Okay, could you hear that or? No. no. <laughs> you should sit up front. <laughs> okay, so the question was about Going out and you know, has a friend who is also into Dharma practice and is just very exuberant about it and loves to share, whereas Matthew was saying, you know, he's he's more reserved and doesn't want to, just that sense of not wanting to proselytize. And so, is there any kind of you know little secret <laughs> formula for sharing just enough, you know, and what one could say and first. I think it's uh really helpful to know that absolutely the best communication will be how you are rather than what you say, because that's what gets communicated you know, and so if you're more accepting and less judgmental you know and more open, you don't have to say anything because people are going to feel that you know when they're with you so you can take refuge in that you know it doesn't necessarily require words it's really helpful as we talked about in the group to be sensitive <coughs> to where other people are coming from when they ask about the retreat you know because you'll go home and people say well how was it <laughs> Well, my knee pain was, (laughs) you know, some people, that's just another way of saying hello, and they don't want a blow-by-blow description. (laughs) So you have to be sensitive, you know, you have to be sensitive to where people, there may be those who are really interested. And one of the things that I love in teaching and in the interviews and Do it more or less successfully, but it's it's the place that that I really uh, enjoy is just as people come in, you know, and it's really this parade of minds. It's quite I call it the the 15-minute marriage, you know, because it's as you know it's it's an intimate space for 15 minutes. (laughs) Next. But what I love about those 15 minutes is just if it's possible to find just that place of connection, you know, and listening to where, you know, people are at and in, in the way you describe your experience, just, just to find that place of real connection out of which something can happen, you know, some conversation can unfold. But the first part. Is feeling that connection, you know, because if we're just kind of downloading our experience or our understanding, (coughs) without actually feeling where the person is at, it's often a mess, you know. Even if the words are right, so that's. um, I think that's just a beautiful part of learning how to listen, you know, and how to communicate. So it's more about that than any particular, you know, words you use. I mean, it's really interesting to go back. You'll go back and, you know, you'll be with family and friends. It would be just really interesting for you to bring awareness to, especially to those initial contacts and to see if it's possible to meet you know, people that we know really well, it's almost from a place of not knowing. You know, so we're not jumping in right away with our preconceptions and all our memories and our ideas of who this person is, but we actually bring that sense of just openness and listen. You know, it would be interesting to see if actually you connect in a different way. Than you know a habitual way, because we all have so many. Uh, there's so much projection, you know, of how other people are, even, even, and maybe especially the people closest to us. And so to drop back into that space, freer of projection, where we're really just listening and taking in. That's a beautiful moment. I'll share one story. I was waiting all retreat. To but <laughs> and this so, some of you probably know this from earlier retreats. This goes back <coughs> many years. Uh, I was doing a Zen seshin with Suzaki Roshi. And I just did a couple with him. And he's a pretty fierce Zen master. <coughs> and so the Sashins, it's a week-long retreat. Very intense. Koan method. <coughs> you know, where you get some... Koan. Uh, you know, the the famous ones like what's the sound of one hand clapping? Or so there's a whole progression of koans. So we're sitting and walking. It's very formal. The Zen, Zen practice. <coughs> very formal, very structured, very pressured. Go in to uh, four times a day, you know, to, to meet with Roshi, you know, you bow, you the response to your koan?" <clears throat> well, the first, this was my first session. The first three or four days of this, this is just a week, every time I went in and gave my response to the koan, he would just ring his bell and say, mm, Very stupid. <laughs> 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 and there were just variations. <laughs> On that theme, and <laughs> I felt like I was doing really well. And he said, "Oh, good, but not Zen." <laughs> <You know? laughs> Ring the bell. So finally, after four times a day, you know, three or four days of this, I was getting more and more uptight and, you know, dreading going in to see him. <laughs> so finally, he gives me—I think—he he gave me an easier koan. <laughs> he backed me up. So he said, how do you manifest Buddha nature while chanting a sutra? So I said, okay, that's easy. (laughs) However, (laughs) little did he know, I I don't think he knew, this triggered something way back to my third grade music teacher who said, Goldstein, just mouth the words. So singing was like, you know, and that was reinforced over the years by many people. <laughs> so here I have to go in this very pressured situation and start chanting a sutta. I was a mess. So in the sitting, I'm just rehearsing and rehearsing and rehearsing. You know, just <laughs> it's really just to chant a line or two. So the bell rings for the interviews. I go in. I do my bows. I start to chant this one line. I made a complete mess of it. I mean, I got the words all wrong. I got the (laughs) melody all wrong. So I felt totally, totally exposed and raw. I just—it was an awful feeling. You know, just completely bare and just in that moment you know he looked at me and he said oh very good and it was an amazing moment i mean i can still just i get a rush just talking about it again because it was like because my heart was just so bare you know and open those words just touched right into my heart you know so there was there was just an amazing feeling you know, of connectedness and love and compassion, which came about from that vulnerability, from that openness. So, I can't remember now what prompted this whole story, (laughs) 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 but it's something about staying open. (laughs) It was relevant to something. (laughs) Some some experiences stay with you for a lifetime, you know. That that was really one of them. It just it showed me the the potential of what can happen when we're that open, even if we're not choosing to be that open, you know. But it's just we're in that state. You know, it's really powerful.
4: In the young adult or young practitioners circle today it was really beautiful and uh it just felt like there was this um shared sense of inspiration and also like wanting to go out into the world and, and share what we've been so fortunate to receive and um you know people questions about careers and all of this but a lot of this like wanting to serve the dharma and just devote our lives to this really and um, strong aspiration. And yet I have this um, conditioning where, and also I see how like sometimes wanting to share the Dharma is a real sort of red flag for me. Like the road to Buddhahood and egohood are really similar, you know, and how that can just be mana and like creating this identity. And um, traditionally, you know, you're not supposed to want to teach. And uh, I wonder if you have wisdom about how to hold that gently it's really it feels beautiful aspiration mm-hmm. to want to share what we have with people and also like not
0: turn it into poison. Mm-hmm. So the question was about you know, coming out of that uh, the group of uh, the younger folk here and just you know that energy the, the beautiful energy of being touched deeply by the dharma and wanting to share it, you know, in some way in the world. But also being aware of the danger of, you know it turning into an ego trip or becoming a teacher or just all of that.
1: Um,
0: <clears throat> it all comes down to uh, really staying very sensitive to uh, the range of motivations that are behind an act, it doesn't mean that we have to wait for our motives to be perfectly pure before we do anything because then we'd never do anything. You know? I think it's more a question of not being self-deluded and it would be much more uh, helpful so, you know, there's that genuine wish to want to share the Dharma in some way, you know, and um, really out of a place of metta and, and compassion. And maybe there's another little voice in the mind, you know, some, some ego gratification in it or something like that. I think that's fine to, you know, and that, that could well be there until one's an Arhant. Mana, conceit, is not uprooted until one's an Arhant. But it's a question of are we aware of that in the mind as it comes up and not have that be the driving force? If that's if that's the main motivation, definitely better to step back. But if it's really coming from a place of the initial motivation is wholesome, but then you hear this other... So you're just aware of it. You're not, not deluding ourselves, but we're not Giving emphasis to that, but not empowering that, then I think it's fine. You know, and I can't remember whether well, I've shared this story, but you know, when I first started teaching, I was, in, it was still I was in India, uh, and in the summer months we would go up to the mountains because it was um, really hot on the plains. You know, we get would get like to 120. Um, so we'd rent these little cottages up in the mountain, and after some years of being there. I started, uh, so there was a, a kind of a little sangha that all went to the same place, and people would come every week, and I would just give a dharma talk once a week. And this was before any formal teaching, or but I had been in India some number of years in practicing. Uh, and so every week people would come in, and I loved doing it, and you know it's just that motive of wanting to share. But I noticed something my mind did, you know, at the beginning of every talk. I oh, just count how many people came. <laughs> oh, This week, ten. <laughs> you know, last week, there were fifteen. What <laughs> happened? You know, so that was, that was like a little mana, a little ego thing there. But I just saw that. You know, I saw that arise in the mind, and I just let it go. And then, I, you know, and then the, in the giving of the talk, it felt really wholesome, you know, and good. Uh, so, I think it's a like question of not having unrealistic expectations, that suddenly our mind's going to be totally free of defilement. But, how aware are we?
3: For someone who wants to practice seriously, but doesn't want to get to a place where I can't function in the
0: world, <laughs> how do I balance this? You know. Yeah. Well, it's it's an interesting question. It's just like, you know, the question was about how to balance like a strong commitment to practice, and you're saying in the past. He'd be so committed to the practice that it got out of balance with being able to function well in the world and how to combine the two. Um, this is one, I think, one of the most interesting questions that's coming from this rather unique transmission of the Dharma from the East to the West because at least for now you know, and this may change over time but for now here in the west the dharma practice sincere dharma practice is being carried mostly by lay people you know there are monastic communities but the relative numbers are very small uh, unlike in asia in buddhist countries where you know there are hundreds of thousands of monastics so it's very interesting to, to hold. It really is like a koan: how to hold this question of people who are really motivated or committed to liberation, to awakening, to the highest, really have the highest aspiration. How do we hold that as lay people, and how do we manage that in the world? So this is an ongoing challenge. There's no, there's no easy answer to that, and we don't even know whether it'll be successful. You know, this is a great experiment that we're all engaged in maybe in a few hundred years we'll know did it work you know or not so it's kind of exciting you know if you kind of hold it like that and you know you really we're all explorers in this how can we do it and i think there's a lot of experimentation you know and so you have to see for yourself well what's the difference first in the depth of your practice if you sit 1 hour a day you sit two hours a day. You sit three hours a day. You know, so it's both a question of what's possible just in your life, what you're interested and motivated to do, and then see at what point are you, is it creating a disconnect from your life. You know, and that's going to be different for different people. Um, if we're holding that aspiration, You know, to awaken. Just as lay people, um, we really have to give some serious consideration to what this means in our lives. And I see in myself and in many others, you know, we we often get so busy with things and so many different responsibilities, and very often that becomes a, uh, we feel, oh, well, I can't do it. You know, I couldn't sit two hours a day or whatever it is. But I, ha- I have friends you know, who are super active in the world, totally engaged. In- they happen to be in st- uh, uh, you know, social action uh, endeavors. Really busy and and kind of workaholics, you know, just put in these enormous workdays, but are so committed to the practice that they just do two hours a day every day, regardless that they are committed to doing that. So it's pretty inspiring, you know. This this one uh, guy told me that you know in twenty years or twenty five years. Uh, I think he said that he didn't miss a day, or you know, maybe there was a couple of days. So that's pretty impressive. You know, that that's a really strong commitment. So he did that, and then was very fully engaged in the world. So he found the balance for him. You know, and so you need to experiment. You know, to say, okay, how much can you do, given your life choices and responsibilities, and how much. Uh, is appropriate to do and still stay connected? You know, so it's not really an answer to your question except to say that it is a challenge for all of us. You know, this, this is really the question. And I'd like to just reiterate what's been talked about these, over these last days. The Eightfold Path is not just about sitting. You know, and s- to really take that to heart... It's like Rebecca's talk on on, um, right speech, that's a huge area. We speak a lot in the course of a day. If we made speech, if we really gave priority to being mindful in our speech, that would bring bring a huge amount, degree of mindfulness into our day. also would bring a lot more silence into our day <laughs> so that's so just one example, and you, you know if you looked at every step of the of the Eightfold path and see okay how can i how can I really explore that in my life uh, so it gets the practice gets very um, the practice and life become one you know? it's, so I want to caution against the danger of thinking that it's just about sitting, which as important and fundamental as it is, that's just part of it. You know, the practice of generosity, the the practice of methods, it's so rich. It's it's just every aspect of our lives can become part of our practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and I'm wondering about, are you talking about doing writing um, your mm. The question was just about creativity in the Dharma and just trying to understand the connection and seeing how sometimes it seems to come from craving, but at other times it really feels very selfless. You know, it's just coming through rather than kind of ego centered. First, I think it's really helpful to notice the difference. You know, and to, to notice when it comes more from our neurotic mind than our enlightened mind. You know. One of the things, I've, I may have mentioned this earlier, but one of the things that has become really clear to me is that, at least in my own experience, the deepest creativity comes from silence of mind, not from the discursive mind even something as conceptual as writing you know which one we might think oh well you know doing something so conceptual the thinking mind will be the engine for it but you know when i was doing that writing retreat and so i would be writing then as with any creative endeavor you know you get to places where you just feel stuck you don't quite know you don't quite know what the next move is then I would just go sit. And in the silence, in the mind getting quiet in the silence, it was amazing. Every single time, it's like the way opened up. You know, and then, so then I would write some more until the next roadblock, <laughs> and then sit. So there's an appreciation of, of the creative power of silence, it's beautiful. I mean, it's a, this this is a very uh, this is not silence as a deadening. This is silence as a just a space of opening to the vastness of it all. You know, where we take the self out of the way. Uh, so it's really a beautiful, beautiful thing, and I think that's true of any really true of everything. <laughs> I and mean, we talk of you know creative endeavors, but you know it's true of sports, it's true of just our ordinary interactions. The more we take ourselves out of the way, it's just everything flows until it doesn't flow. <laughs> and then we take a look, okay what's what's damming it up at this moment? Life gets incredibly interesting <laughs> when we're paying attention. Because then we're not just just rolling out our condition, we're not just kind of sleepwalking through life. We're actually aware of what's happening, all the ups and downs, the joys, the sorrows, all of it. But it all becomes part of this great creative unfolding in a direction. It's It's not aimless, it's in the direction of greater freedom.
1: on yourself to sit, and that no matter what ideas came during that time, you didn't tend to them until the
0: sit sitting was <clears> over, <throat> or did you jump you up and? <laughs> I'm writing. I'm on.
1: I'm not on. A, I'm not on a music composition. Right. curious, you know, that, that space of how you held sitting the mm. ideas coming when you're still sitting, mm. especially in this generation, because I think artists of the, the farther in the past we go, they didn't have the types of devices and things that allowed them to get it down right away. And I don't, I already know that doesn't, I don't want the only reason my creativity is get down because I have some kind of iPhone mm-hmm. or something and I'm sitting on the train, you know, mm-hmm. that's no good for me.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, I'm curious a little bit of what that looks like um, First, let me say that, you know, different people may create their spaces differently for doing this. but for me, it was, it was really an alternation of writing and sitting. And so I didn't have a predetermined amount of time that I was going to sit. But as you know, you know from your experience here, each, each sitting meditation, it almost has its own energy curve. It's like it has its own life. You, know, you sit and then at a certain point, it just feels like it's done. And sometimes one can go through that and and, you know, sit through another whole cycle. So I would I would not get up, you know, as I was sitting and if I had a kind of idea of how to move forward in the writing project, I wouldn't get up. Uh, and I would trust and it always was that I knew that at the end of the sitting I would I would remember. So I would let the sitting that energy run its cycle. And then I'd get up, so it was very, it was very organic, you know. There was, I wasn't imposing a structure on it, uh, and that's what it felt. That's why it felt so creative, and it was just, it was beautiful. Mm. But uh, you know, we all have to explore in our own way. Mm. I think, I think I, I used this image before, but I. I think it might be a good image to end with. Um, I think with Dharma, with Dharma understanding, we can really see our entire life as a work of art. You know, we're creating our lives, and that's that's the great gift of mindfulness. That when we're aware, we actually can make wiser choices. You know, in every choice we make, conditions—conditions conditions our mind, conditions our relationships, conditions how we are in the world—and so it's just this great creative pro- project, and like our lives are the medium, and it's a beautiful thing. We're, we're creating a work of art, you know, as we practice the Dharma, and as it just fills us more and more. Uh, You see, you've really all done a great thing in your lives. You know, to take this time and to connect so deeply with your own process, whatever it is that's going on, it doesn't matter. You know, there's the hard stuff and the easy stuff. It's the connectedness that's so valuable. You know, and then we just bring that into our lives. One <laughs> last word of <laughs> uh, in these days, really take refuge in the times of silence. You know, there's a lot of time for talking and engagement, but you know, nourish yourselves, <laughs> nurture yourselves in the times of silence, because then everything just gets uh, everything gets smoother. You know, if if there's just too much of an overload from interaction it just will become painful. You know? And so this alternation of times of engagement and times of quiet, uh, we've learned something in the last 37, 38 years you know, of how to do this, and it really will serve you well. So, thank you. Thank you for listening.